Yes Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. So before I get to a guest I'm very thrilled to introduce, a little bit of housekeeping. I had planned for this season to have 20 episodes, but for myriad scheduling and professional reasons, I've decided that this episode will actually mark the end of this current batch. Uh, There may well be a bonus episode or two to keep your eyes and ears peeled for, but besides that, Best Girl Grip will return properly and regularly in 2023. But back to the present, and this week my guest is the wonderful Eve Gabbro. Eve is someone whose work and ingenuity and consistency I became aware of quite early on in my own career, and she's someone I've wanted uh, on the podcast for a good while. Eve is the founder and managing director of Modern Films, a London-based female-led social issues-driven production, distribution and event cinema company. It was founded in 2017 and has since gone on to release buzzy titles such as Border, Marina, Happy as Lazaro, White Riot, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy and the Oscar winner Drive My Car. Two of their upcoming releases were part of this year's LFF programme, Emily Ateff's More Than Ever and Christopher Borgley's Sick of Myself, which both speak well to the kind of provocative, spellbinding and whip-smart cinema that modern films have made their trademark. Prior to that, Eve was the MD of Soda Pictures for 15 years, where she released such indie hits as Tony Erdman, Only Lovers Left Alive, Patterson and My Life as a Courgette. She also executive produced Rongano Nioni's directorial debut, I Am Not a Witch. She is a regular feature on panels and training schemes throughout the industry and was also featured in Jeffrey McNabb's 2021 book, The British Film Industry in 25 Careers, The Mavericks, Visionaries and Outsiders Who Shaped British Cinema. So it's fair to say I approached this interview with high expectations for the wisdom and insight it might contain and Eve definitely didn't disappoint and it's truly a privilege to count her among Best Girl Grip's guests. This is episode 124 of Best Girl Grip. I guess a good place to start would just be to consider your entry point into the film industry and maybe what you consider to be that first official job or you're getting the foot in the door. Well, I come from a media family. So my father worked in television and my mom in radio. And then my stepfather was a producer and my stepmother worked in fashion PR. So I guess around me, there were always things happening, people coming and going. And it, so it didn't feel totally foreign to me. And so I worked on sets as a, you know, as a student, either as an extra or background artist or even an extras coordinator, things sort of behind the scenes. And then. Eventually, my first real job was at the Vancouver Film Festival, and that kind of launched me into this idea of what happens to get a film onto onto the screen and who are the people behind it and how it all works. So I think I got the bug there. And obviously that continued for a little while. I know you had roles at um, the Edinburgh Film Festival, which I say now with a little bit of sadness in my voice, uh, under former podcast guest Lizzie Frankie and the London Film Festival under former podcast guest Sandra Hebron. I'm wondering, you know, with that experience and obviously at Vancouver as well, how that informed your understanding of what the film industry was and maybe where your place in it would be. Yeah, festivals, I think, are a great kind of microcosm of all that happens in the film industry because you get films, you have PR, you have marketing, you have audiences, you have 
so many films all coming together and just trying to figure out how they all fit together. So for me, it was a really great education, even though I had so much formal education, it was my real professional education. And yeah, so I worked in Vancouver and, and there, because I had lived in Japan and China for a couple of years between my undergraduate and working there, got put on the East Asian desk, so to speak, with the guests and with the films and working a bit on the, with the program team and ended up meeting our East Asian programmer, who's also an expert in the field, um, Tony Rains, who's British and lived in London, lives still in London. And when I was moving to London, I said, oh, you should work at the festival as well and helped me meet Sandra. And actually, Adrian Wooten was the director then and Sandra was the, the deputy director. And you know, I got a job. I knew nothing really about anything in London anyway, <laughs> but uh, learned very quickly and learned the industry, learned who all the people were, you know, who all the companies were and how they, how they kind of fit together. So I ended up then interacting with distribution pretty closely early on. And in that time, also, I was studying film at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And through, you know, it's all about networking, isn't it? Say <laughs> I met people there who then recommended for me for some writing. So I did some writing for The Guardian and Time Out. And then some of the, you know, we're doing some consulting for Edinburgh and recommended I get in touch with them. And I did. And so it sort of led to working there. It's all kind of, Organic, I guess, you know, from, but a lot of the festival work I did was really on the management side, not the programming side. Eventually I did do some programming. Absolutely. And sometimes I think it's about not hewing too closely to a path and thinking that you have to do certain jobs to get to a certain goal because then you'll be more open to the opportunities that do come your way. Yeah, there was no master plan. That's for sure. <laughs> and how did distribution, you know, reveal itself to you as the thing that maybe you could make your mark in or establish a career in or that you were just you know at a base level interested in you know what was that deciding factor for you yeah I think most people don't even know what distribution is unless you work in the industry and, and when I tell people what I do sometimes they're more often they're very surprised that that even exists so there's sort of no audience well not none but mostly for the most part no connection between how a film gets made and then how it gets to the screen and so I don't know that I set out as a as a little girl to become a film distributor but I I knew that I always wanted to uh work internationally and in culture and I think bringing those two things together and although I, I did do a lot of academic work it wasn't quite for me public sector not quite for me anyway at least in in those early days so it was a good way to sort of have a commercial role, relatively given it the independent sector, but also work across you know, different countries, different cultures, different people, different stories. So mm. somehow, and I fell into it, I would say, through, through again, through meeting people and, and seeing how it all worked and then realizing it really suited me. Where do you think that interest in the international came from? You know, as you said, you spent time in Japan and China, you studied Oriental studies. You know, what was the, the root of that? Yeah, I grew up in Canada, um, in different parts of Canada, mostly Toronto and Vancouver. They're very, very different cities, very different ways of life as well. And weather conditions will make you a very different person, how you relate to, to nature and the outdoors or the city space. So I think that, and, and they're very different culturally. So I think that set maybe some sparks in me. Uh, and then also my family's French. So we spent a lot of time in France and traveling in Europe. So that also was part of my interest in, in the world and seeing it from a young age in different ways, interest in, in the world itself and wanting to be part of it. And obviously you brought that interest and that ethic to the founding of Soda Pictures in 2002, which is, yeah, the company that you founded along with Edward Fletcher. And I'm wondering, like, if you saw a gap in a market, you know, you saw a dearth of international films in the UK marketplace, you were like, we can fill that. Or again, it was just sort of following this interest and maybe it became more than the sum of its parts. 
Yeah, I think it's more that. I don't think we were looking for a gap in the market because it sort of felt like a, that would be a negative thing to do. But we were very optimistic, I guess, and young and bright and thinking we can do this. And, you know, it was a different time. There were fewer companies, fewer films, more opportunities, even though we, we, we complained then, but there were far more about uh, for exhibition and longer runs of films and column inches for press coverage and sort of guaranteed reviews and features, even if everything was on in print, pretty much. Uh, I think so. It was just really this idea that we could do it and we could find films that we liked, you know, within reason because resources were limited. It really was about Let's try it out. And we had support from exhibition, which was super important from, in particular, uh, Tony Jones, who was the programmer for the prison cinemas at the time and just really supported us and let films play out. And mm. that gave the confidence to us. And, you know, I'm going to age myself here, but we actually had to make a decision whether we would do VHS at all, <laughs> which we decided not to. And then DVD, we ended up partnering in the early days with Optimum that became Studio Canal. And that was just a really good way for us to participate in the boom of DVD with a, with a great brand. And presumably indicative of some forward thinking that I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, more in depth later, this idea of saying goodbye to VHS and embracing it <laughs> now. But I'm also wondering, you know, obviously with uh, acquisitions and distribution, it's all very well being interested in a film, but the film in a way has to be interested in you. And I'm wondering how you went about establishing Soda Pictures as a home for films, the kind of films that you wanted to get out there, you know, how are you getting your name out there? I think it just takes a bit of time to build up a library of films that then start to speak for themselves. You know, we never really had a definition of what a soda film was, but I think both Ed and I knew what it was instinctively and then hoped that that came across as we went along, especially on an industry level when we were buying films from other sales agents or producers. So I think that's just a feeling that emerged out of the kinds of films we both liked. So that was nice. You know, we both had a similar taste in film and uh, that complemented each other. So we could almost always agree, at least on, on a film and on an acquisition and on the numbers that we thought we could achieve. And that's just where it grew from, I mm-hmm. think. And then the support, again, you know, you, you look at films and you think, how are other people reacting or where is it being launched? How's it being perceived? What's the market interest in it? What can we do with it? So all those things together. But there's also, yeah, just that feeling, do I like this film? Am I interested in the story, the people behind it? And thinking of like looking out at the marketplace, were there any other companies or distributors that were doing what you wanted to be doing that you were looking to for inspiration or guidance, you know, that helped you develop your own kind of business model? Yeah, at that time, as I mentioned, there was Optimum, who we worked very closely with, and then they grew into what became Studio Canal. So to watch them and see how they grew, you know, by handling libraries and and growing and having films that really that marked their growth or their change. And at the time, you know, again, we were a bit more collaborative, I think. I mean, we were all competitive, but it didn't feel as, you know, cutthroat. I don't know. I I thought we all just kind of hung around. But there was Tartan at the time who were doing very, very edgy films. I think what we wanted to do was that, but a little bit differently, maybe a bit more disruptive, a bit more innovative, Mm -hmm. marketing focused. And in the days before, there were, were even terms like event cinema or impact films or impact campaigning. Even online distribution, we were playing with that in the early days. So... I think our idea was always to be a bit more nimble and a bit more resourceful than other companies around us, but they were also obviously doing big things too. Even Revolver, who ended up being a bit of a reckless company, at least they did amazing things in terms of marketing. Mm. That was important to see how you could push campaigns. Is there something that comes to mind, you know, when you say nimble, when you say disruptive, an example of you doing that very successfully? 
I guess there were sort of smaller films that people maybe even passed or passed on or didn't didn't really think much about in terms of the market or filmmakers that we discovered, I think was an important part of being uh, forward looking. You know, we look at directors sometimes now, like Kelly Reichardt, who we supported from the very beginning. And it was wonderful to grow with her films, even though all of them were challenging in lots of ways, but they had such a heart to them. And I think such a sense of what the indie spirit in cinema is. So films like that were kind of driving forces that we felt we, we stood out. Well, speaking of challenges, I imagine there were myriad, you know, and as a young and independent company. What were some of the challenges that you faced in terms of trying to establish yourself as a company that maybe, you know, didn't have a wealth of resource behind you? Yeah, I think that was probably the biggest challenge. Lack of resources, financial and also human resources. We were a small team. But then over time, we did raise some investment funds and eventually did sell the company to a larger media group, which changes everything. And it does give you that greater market power. But with that comes greater competition. You know, when you're on a smaller level, competition is smaller as you move up levels. But I don't know what levels mean so much. They just mean you can buy it bigger film maybe better easier faster to market and, and market it better and but i think yeah those are the challenges really it's always the same and, and distribution is a funny place between you buy the film and then you sell it on but you're in the middle so you've paid to acquire it and release it and then you wait for the income to come in across all the different rights areas so i mean everyone has their own your cinemas have their rent and their staff and producers have their production so we all we all sort of sit in these kind of limbo spaces where you're paying out and waiting for it to come in and that's just getting that balance I suppose and then having a few films that really feed into the cash flow and feed into the next film and allow you to, to kind of grow and, and do the things you want to do I think that's frustrating sometimes in distribution I think those are challenges you know, how do you make that impact you want and, and keep going and you know, have films that break out and sometimes you know film can be an amazing critical success or festival success and just not work and as we know that can be as well as easy mm -hmm. as weather or an event that happens in the world that you didn't predict or something or you know, something else comes out that's somehow clicks more. And then the other time is you have a film that you think, oh, this might or might not work. And it does. And that's always a really great feeling or a film that you hoped and thought would work does work. It's probably the ultimate best feeling in an acquisition and, and release strategy. But it's, I guess, having your nerve, being tenacious and, and forward looking all the time. Mm -hmm. But also not 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 forgetting to reflect on what you've done and what's worked and what hasn't and, and mm -hmm. how things are changing. Well, yeah, I think that's interesting, and not not to dwell on the negative, you know, <laughs> side of the coin. But when a film doesn't quite have the impact that maybe you'd intended it to, how long are you spending kind of analysing that and looking at the why, or is it just a case of these things happen? You know, you've got to brush it off and and continue forward. Yeah, I think brushing it off can be not the best thing because you then just feel bad about it not working. So if you can try to understand why maybe that can just help and sometimes there is no reason for you know it's increasingly now to maybe you can find another way if you really still believe in the film and hopefully it got good reviews there's something you can do with it in other ways of showing the film screening or other partners who, who show it in different places and different times so I think you have to reflect on what didn't work and what potentially worked but if there's just really nothing <laughs> it just didn't resonate Across the board then I mean we will put it on TVOD and so luckily there are these nice networks of people visiting Amazon and iTunes and various other platforms so a film can sometimes just find its way there but you know, we don't spend a lot of time then marketing it so it's either that you connect it thematically through metadata and hope if you like this you might like this that it finds an audience you didn't anticipate definitely 
try to reflect on what did and didn't work and use that. Try to find another way for the film to work with theatrically if there's that first protocol, which is a big opportunity or it's, you know, it's a good thing in the world of film today that we, it's not, everything is not reliant on theatrical. Narrative. I mean, it's still, even if it's not really, it's still the kind of focal point of distribution. Yeah. That's what producers want. That's what we want. That's what everybody wants. But the reality is our audience is as excited to go to the cinema. And it's occurred to me, obviously, that your background you do has been quite creative and cultural, but then with the exponential growth of soda and it being bought out by this parent company, I'm wondering if you found yourself in quite like a steep learning curve in terms of the business side of the industry and, and learning how to navigate that, you know, with a certain level of shrewdness. Yeah, suddenly you're responsible to shareholders and stakeholders and different fiscal areas that you've never worked on or never really had to think about so concretely and, and visually and present all the time and justify and green light and, yeah, as you said, reflect on it and just, you know, just put all the numbers into past, present and future cash flows and forecasting. That all became quite important. But then with growth came more people, more expertise. So working with people who knew more about that than I did. So I could also watch them. And, and learn with them and work with them. So that's contributed to a lot of how I run my life and my business now. But I think we had sort of baby steps. We were from a very small company to a medium-sized company to, as I mentioned earlier, investment funds that we, although we kept ownership of the company, we had investors coming and going and investing in certain projects. So there was a sort of in and out of presenting and you know, business responsibility. And then eventually selling the company and going through that whole M&A, the merger and acquisition process, especially international because they were a Canadian and American company it was really, it was really amazing. You know, and, and it's one of those things that even if I don't work for that group anymore and actually the company doesn't really exist as it was, that's okay. These things happen. It's the evolution of the business and the content and creators, but it was, it was a great time and it allowed us to really grow professionally and personally and could work on bigger films and with other people. So. And and before we talk about that evolution and, and, you know, what you've evolved into now, do you have like a proudest moment or a release with Soda or something that, you know, is a real highlight for you that you look back on? Yeah, after we sold Soda to the, the Thunderbird group, we then had a lot more resources. And it was a time also when streamers were coming into into play and were interested in independent film and partnerships. So that year, to when 16, we were able to acquire films that all ended up being Oscar nominated and getting big streamer deals and found their audiences. So that year was sort of felt like a culmination of a lot of things. So the films we had were Patterson, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson with Adam Driver or Tony Erdman, A Man Called Ove and Land of Mine. They were also both Oscar nominated. And then we had my Life as a Courgette that was nominated for Best Animation. So that was kind of a spread of World cinema, impactful titles, American indie, animation that crossed over from kids to adults. And that whole year just felt like, ah, that's it. <laughs> that's what I've been <laughs> trying to do. And then obviously in 2017, you pivoted and launched Modern Films. Did that come from a hunger to do something differently than you had been allowed to do or just had done at Soda? Or was, again, it more organic? I mean, I had a lot of freedom at Soda, even when we were bought out by Thunderbird, because I think that's what they were interested in, is, is mm-hmm. our voice. But it seemed like a good time for me to, to move on. And I didn't really intend to start something new quite so quickly. 
but it was at Cannes 2017 and we had a film that we had produced in-house that was premiering there, I'm Not a Witch, by Rangana Naomi, which was a Welsh Zambian um, social satire. And it was in Director's Fortnight. And that was a strong, strong voice uh, in cinema and a nice film to to chain gears with for me personally. And and then also Manifesto was a film I had acquired as sort of pictures, but uh, I took it with me. It was just, you know, one last job for distribution mm-hmm. that I would do on my own. There's a very specific film with Kate Blanchett playing 13 different roles and had been an art installation um, edited into a, a linear uh, narrative feature, sort of narrative feature. But it need, it's because it's an art piece, it kind of crossed over into the art world and it's quite a daunting piece of cinema. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something quite different with it. And I had promised, I guess, worked with the director to create this release strategy. So I just wanted to see it through. And we did end up releasing it with Kate's support and with a live event that we broadcast live, uh, nationwide from Tate Modern. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that I really wanted to do where you shout uh, out about the film and its level of, of talent, but also the depth of the story and then the connection between art and film. And then mm-hmm. having Tate and, and event cinema is very good when it's associated with an institution. And then to have Tate Modern not only allow us to host the event there with you know, the satellite trucks and everything and cords running through the, the main uh, turbine hall is very complicated. Was <laughs> also just having live from Tate Modern as a you know, side uh, or a tagline to the event and promotions and joint campaign and things just gave you that extra uh, validity for audiences and also for partnership to know that the film that was kind of set a tone I suppose for this new idea and then once I had those two films I'm not a witch and manifesto I thought okay that's that's a new tone that's sort of similar to what I was doing at photo but this is a bit different plus the world was changing in fact the day we launched manifesto was the day of the Harvey Weinstein story broke in the New York Times so I was like wow and Kate you know had a lot of reaction to it so we just suddenly were in this space where there felt like a real culture change that's kind of where I started moving from there. How can we do event cinema differently? How can we build impact campaigns? And that really be the crux of, of what we do. And sticking with Manifesto, I did. I read that you, obviously you spoke about it being very specific, a very different type of film. And I read that you wanted to release it with conviction. What does that mean? What, is it, what does it look like to create a theatrical campaign with conviction? Well, I think that just goes back to what I said about the partnership and institutional partnership like the one with Tate Modern is just to say, we believe in this film. We know what it is. We know it's not for everyone, but we know mm-hmm. it says something. And it had been a blockbuster exhibition, which is one of those ones where people line up you know, around the corner to mm-hmm. see. And we wanted that to be reflected in the film, even though it is quite a difficult, challenging film. I think the more people see it, the more they reflect on, on all the different art manifestos that are recreated. By, by Kate. So I think that was the conviction was really like, how can we take this fairly obscure, challenging film and make it more powerful for audiences and mm-hmm. without being patronizing, of course, just give it to them in a way that maybe feels interesting and fun and entertaining. And if you just put it out, you know, not this film only, but other films too, if you just put them out sometimes in a traditional way, it just don't resonate. And presumably that forms part of the tagline for modern films, which is expanding the cinema experience, you know, thinking more perhaps widely about where films can go. But how else do you think of expansion? You know, is it in terms of for who or, you know, or how? Like, talk to me a little bit about the the mission behind that statement. Yeah, I think expanding the cinema experience definitely came 
from lockdown when we launched a virtual cinema platform, which was a way of showing films digitally on release through cinemas and cultural partners instead of um, regular streaming, streaming platforms and then sharing revenues mm-hmm. with the cinemas back. We're still working on that, but in, in quite a different way. But that notion of expanding the cinema, I suppose, literally means expanding where you watch films, whether it's physically in the cinema or in a different physical space that is not a cinema or digitally in a different way. And then, I guess, more metaphorically expanding the cinema experiences, the kinds of films that you have access to and think about and watch. And when you're looking to acquire a film, I'm wondering, like, you know, what kinds of questions you're asking yourself to assess whether it's the right fit for modern films and that you as a company are equipped to distribute it. Links to the, your question earlier about the challenges to, to, to distribution, that's what you think about. What is this film? Who's it for? How's it being launched? You know, we do tend to, especially at this stage in, in my kind of distribution careers, is it at an A-list festival? That's where I tend to start anyway, or from producers um, that I've worked with before have projects of interest. And then, you know, is the market, are the critics responding to it? Is the market interest in it? Could I sell it on to television or to a streaming platform? Do I think there's potential? And then all those things kind of factor in and you build and model what other films is it like that have worked or not worked? What are the risks? What are the possibilities? And then just do I like it? (laughs) Do I want to? work on it do I want to bring this present it to the team maybe I show it to the team see what they think brainstorm that's how you assess a film really ultimately there's the business side and then there's the the feeling side Mm -hmm. it happens sometimes I've brought films back from festivals and people say oh but you know you really need to buy the get them to buy into it I was um, use the film Wajda as an example by Haifa El-Mansur that was the first ever Saudi film and it was also by a woman director and there was a story behind that how did she make the film and she made it without breaking the law but the law said a woman can't work in public so she made it from a van and you know, she is from quite a cultural Saudi family so she was able to sort of play both sides of how do I make an interesting film and you know, not upset the government and uh, or the authorities and uh it was in Venice, and I remember watching it there. And that's the difference of watching something, I think, at a festival. Although that can also kind of slightly skew your perception. <laughs> but um, then watching it at home or, you know, not with a public audience sometimes can be a bit different. But anyway, at the end of that film, I looked across the road, everybody was crying. And I thought, oh, this film, <laughs> this film is really doing something. So I, I bought it, and I came back from Venice with it. And said, I've got this Saudi Arabian film called Wajda. And everyone just looked at me like, we can't pronounce it. We've never seen a film from Saudi. It doesn't sound great. It's about a girl who wants to get a bicycle, so she learns the Quran. And it just thinks, just didn't sound that exciting. And then I said, no, our goal is to turn that around to be that great Saudi film by a female director from, you know, called Wajda, about the girl with the bicycle. In Italy, they even called it you know, the green bicycle. But it worked. You know, really, it was a great success. But it took it took took that kind of I guess vision and movement uh, around the team, and then getting partners from the outside that also agreed. And, you know, it's a film of its time. I still think it's a wonderful film, but I think at that time maybe the the world of film needed something like that too. That was a bit groundbreaking, different from a part of the world that wasn't so well known, or at least not w- w- known for cultural expression and people behind the veil. You know, like, and so it was. Yeah, it was a great, great film. But it took, took a bit of convincing, I have to yeah. say. But then once everyone was on board, then that resonated. 
I feel like that's a good time to talk about this book that you're a part of, which is Jeffrey McNabb's sort of compendium of the film industry through the lens of these 25 careers that he considers to kind of be uh, game changing in some way. Or I think, you know, Mavericks, Visionaries, Outsiders, um, and you're a part of it, Ev. And I'm wondering, you know, what you consider, why, I guess is the question, but as in, you know, what do you consider to be Maverick about your approach? You know, is it that that willingness to take risks on films that maybe you know might otherwise not have been brought to the UK yeah I mean when Jeffrey first asked me to contribute to that book I said sure not really knowing entirely what it was I know the kind <laughs> of books that he writes and it was for Bloomsbury Press but part of the Film Distributors Association commissions so I had a sense of it but I, I didn't really know who else was in it nor I mean, he told me a few people but nor those tagline of the people that shaped the British film industry when it when it was ready I was like wow I'm part of that, that I mean it really felt quite an honor and almost it was very humbling to be in a book like that yeah and I'm surprised how many people have read it it's very interesting but no no no. I, I say that jokingly only because sometimes I wonder you know if people care about the industry so much but the people in the book definitely have made their impact and and so I think those three words visionary I was very nice to be part of visionary because I do feel like that's what drives me anyway to try to be innovative and disruptive and bring new ideas and new stories and talent to to audiences here. Maverick, I suppose, again, that comes around risk-taking and just trying things out in hopes yeah, that it will work in a sort of experienced way. And then the outsider one, you know, well, I am you know, not from here. So although I've lived here you know, for a very long time, almost half my life, so even if I don't sound it. Uh, but uh, that, that's true. I'm always sort of not quite in, not quite out. So those three words together, I think, do sum up the way I work. Do you think that's a benefit, having grown up outside of the UK? And do you feel like you're still bringing a sense of difference, you know, to the way that you do things? I guess so. You know, it's it's a funny thing. Some, you know, on a good day, yes. On a bad day, maybe no. You know, there is an interesting thing about not being British and living in the UK. It just is reality and get very upset about things like Brexit. I'm allowed to mention that. And uh, and then you feel really like an outsider. Although I do remember when Mark Carney was the governor of the Bank of England, he's Canadian. I thought, oh, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm less of an outsider today. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I suppose it goes back to me being very international and interested in the world. So just living here in London, of course, mm. or bigger cities in the UK are very cosmopolitan and really about being kind of outsiders coming together, whether you're British from elsewhere too, or just kind of how you, how you look at the world. But I remember being in a taxi once and they said that was transatlantic. <laughs> and I thought, cross Atlantic, something like that. I suppose that's it, that bridge between where I'm from and where I live. And and speaking of international, we have to talk, talk about Drive My Car, which is one of your recent successes at Modern Films, obviously went on to win uh, Best International Feature at the Oscars. Is that something you had planned for or expected, you know, as soon as you saw the film and acquired it, do you think, right, now we're on the road to the Oscars? Or was it something that you know, evolved <laughs> over time when you suddenly realised? Because it felt to me, you know, as a as a viewer, it was suddenly just in the cinema for a lot of weeks and it felt like something that was gradual but how did it feel from your you know side of things yeah I knew about the film before I mean I'm a Japanophile and a huge Murakami fan and I have worked on some other Murakami projects in the past so I knew and I had also picked up a film from the director uh, Yusuke Hamaguchi who he had had a film in Berlin the same year last year mm -hmm. that won the Silver Affair uh, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy so I, I, I picked up that film because I liked it very much but I also wanted to have a greater depth into his his catalogue of films and in line for Drive My Car. So I knew I would 
like it, but you never know, you know, until you get to the festival. And then I saw it at Cannes, which was moved that year, last year, to mm-hmm. July instead of May, and knew the sales agent and put in an offer and did get it. But I think a lot of people maybe were skeptical about a three-hour Japanese film working to the level that it did, for sure. I had an Oscar bump in the contract, so which I wasn't sure I was ever going to pay. So <laughs> the fact that I, I, uh, I did have to, um, you know, meant that the film was once so that was a great thing but you know when you put in a bump like that you're like, that won't that won't happen um but it, it did and a BAFTA bump too BAFTA and Oscar bumps and one both and multiple other awards but I suppose I always felt like it had enough that it would work to a certain level mm-hmm. when we released it in November last year 2021 it was still COVID there were still restrictions it was still difficult to get audiences excited about a three-hour film or three hours in the cinema mm-hmm. um, even if they could go so it was slow, but the reviews were so good and it grew and grew. And in fact, it played at cinemas in particular, the person Bloomsbury for six months straight. Um, and that was very exciting. But it was nice to see it grow for sure. Mm-hmm. For the campaign, you know, we took, brought in all the different elements and the reviews and this kind of constant steady stream of rewards around the world it, as part of our campaign. Also, we linked up with the U.S. distributor, uh, to, to coordinate the two releases and awards campaigns and audiences so i think that helped it doesn't but that doesn't always work out uh, but it did in this case we even worked with the japanese tourist office who had a little bit of extra budget that they couldn't spend because no one could go to japan to tri- see japan through cinema and then through drive my car so do drive from the yeah. south to the north so it's a good way to see the see the countries <laughs> yeah very clever and obviously talking about the, the the collaboration that you had there with the US distributor, like, oh, there, this is maybe a bit esoteric, but are there sort of like sister distributors in other territories? So if you see someone like, you know, for instance, I, I feel like, you know, Mubi and A24 are very much like on the same level or distributing similar films. If you see a US distributor has picked up something, you're like, ah, oh, you know, they've distributed other modern films before. Maybe we should be, I don't know, does it work like that? In yeah, the- sure. No, yeah, we talk to each other all the time or if we hear they've picked it up or they hear we've picked it up. Yeah, in the US, you know, it, it's funny. <laughs> I mean, obviously, A24 are kind of, they're the model, aren't they, of independent film. And I have done many films with them, maybe in the in the earlier days. Other distributors like Film Movement, we work with Tina Lorber, Utopia, who are more, I guess, more of a dis- digital distribution company, but they do do theatrical as well. Um, and then we work with, across with French or with Scandinavian distributors. So it's true. It's more the sales agent, I suppose, that we have the relationship with. But increasingly, it's, it's great to know who other territories are that we can align with. It's always the reality of, at least for the US, it's English language. We can share materials if it makes sense. With other mm-hmm. territories, it can be a bit more complicated to, to share assets, but we try as much as we can. Um, if the messaging is right. But it is interesting. We have this Norwegian film by the same producers of uh, The Worst Person in the World coming out called Sick of uh-huh. Myself. Yeah, that was in the London Film Festival this month. This month. And uh, the Norwegian trailer, although it's great, is too Norwegian, I think, whatever that means for us. But uh, And then there's a French trailer. And I think we'll end up making our own one just because I have a sense of what will appeal to, I think, a UK audience, or at least what would appeal to me as an audience member. And so just trying to get that right balance of the film. I think it's, it is important though, yeah, that we see who's doing what as well. It can give you confidence. I know sales agents and producers don't like that because sometimes we'll wait and see who else, who else is buying it before we buy a film. Like we need the sort of a herd mentality, isn't it? Sometimes we think, well, if they like it, then I'll like it. If they don't, then I don't. And mm-hmm. or we just have to be that first person that says, I like the film and I'm going to buy it and announce it and see what happens. 
I'm wary that you probably get asked this question a lot as a spokesperson for the distribution sector. And it's, it's to do with like, you know, the changes that you've seen over the past, you know, five years. But I'm wondering more specifically how those changes have impact how you do your job. If there's something, you know, much more tangible that you felt that changes the way you interact with filmmakers or, you know, with festivals or how you actually release a film. It's it's a good question. I think the streamers have come on so visibly and then they are gatekeepers for for films. So if your film isn't selected for a license on any of the streaming platforms, then you're really reliant on transactional visibility on maybe Amazon and iTunes and a few others along the way. So I think that that has changed a lot. We used to have output deals with a lot of the streamers that we knew that we had support or we had media money from Brussels before Brexit, which also de-risked a lot of our, our acquisitions so we could push films out that maybe were more challenging. So that has changed the way we acquire films. And sometimes it's sad for me. You know, I say, I cannot pick up a film I really like because I just can't make sense of it anymore. Or I don't know what the future is at the moment. So I think also it may be just for my own sanity and, and kind of responsibilities. We're trying to acquire fewer films, but try to make a bigger impact uh, with them. But it's still quite a few films. Last year we had too many. Um, and then there are also all the other companies that release films as well. So just trying to figure out how can we say more, maybe with less, but still work on the films that we want to or can can do and find a, find homes for them. But as as certain downturns happen, there's always like a new platform or a new space where people can work into a new way of monetizing the back end for both us and, and the producers. But I don't know. You know, anything pre-COVID feels like a different world. Anything during COVID is not useful in terms of modeling out. And then anything now, I mean, who knows what the winter is going to bring, but we're just, you know, now assuming it's sort of the new reality of film and hopefully people will come back to the cinema but if they don't in the way they used to then what is it that motivates people to come out and how can we add to that or contribute to it and how can we then find other ways so when we used to say you know I think the reality is I know nothing or you know I think we really don't but we also know what a good film is and we, there are ways to to show people even with Drive My Car, I watched it at home with my husband in the summer. He still hadn't seen it. <laughs> I said, like, I even went to the Oscars and you still haven't seen it. <laughs> uh, you know, a Japanophile too. But he, so I finally, we finally sat down and watched it but over three nights. It was a really wonderful way to watch it, actually. It felt more episodic. And there, there are natural breaks. There are sort of the two natural breaks that break it into, or that allow you to watch it in three parts and kind of think about it differently. Or I have a friend who's a writer and he, he said he watched it in 20 minute chunks every day, like a book sort of chapter mm. and then felt kind of bereft when it was like a good book, when it's over that you kind of wanted to start again and, and mm. keep watching it like that. So I, I like the idea. And I know Hamaguchi even said he loved the idea that people found their own way of watching films. And that's something that didn't exist even, even before COVID and the sort of idea of different ways of streaming films and yeah. accessing them. So I think that's, that's nice. Even if, a filmmaker makes a sort of linear piece of art that they want watched in a very specific way. Almost, it's almost like a painting too. You know, once it's there, it's up to people to look at it. So watching it is different, but we have to accept that. And then, but we still need an ecosystem or, uh, uh, that works. Mm-hmm. If there's not enough money coming into exhibition, then there's not enough for distribution and there's not enough for production. So even though production is the starting point really for films, if the end point isn't working, there will be a breakdown. So. I do think we are all soul searching and, and as a business looking for ways to 
make it work. And maybe the budgets don't have to be as huge as as they have been. Quite so many films, but that's you don't want to take away from any burgeoning talent or you know, big ideas out there. Really interesting answer, and it's already sparking off lots of other questions. And one I want to ask: you said that obviously that you you know nothing, and I'm putting that in quotation marks. <laughs> we won't translate on a podcast, but that you know what a good film is. I'm wondering if that has changed, you know, since you entered the business in 2002. Do you do you feel like what a good film is, you know, is the same? I think it's the same. You know, a good film is a good story that's well told, that resonates, that looks beautiful somehow or looks interesting and, and brings you into into the whole world of that that film. But what the actual content is or the crux of it or the the details, maybe that's that's changed what people want to talk about, what they want to hear about. You don't really want to make a film that's, you do want to make films that are of its time, if that's important, but you also want timeless films. So I think that's what we look at. Something that will, that, that resonates with an audience now, but has, has longevity. You never know. Of course, maybe a topic just becomes something that's, that seems dated. You know, it's amazing sometimes when you rewatch a film and you see how dated it was at the time. Um, <laughs> it was so important and relevant to and so obviously pe- people grow as well differently. But I think, yeah, a good film is still a good film. But everybody's feeling of what a good film is and a bad film. You know, once you're getting into high production values, it's different really from well, you know, studio films, from independent films. But ultimately, it really is about how does it make you feel? And and what we really try to do as distributors is to find the audience for the film and get them to respond to it at the very least. You know, if you can't get the audience that it's for to see it or to, to react to it, then that's, that's a problem. You know, how can you build a wider audience from that? So I suppose it's knowing that not everything's for everyone. And even if you think it's for someone, they're not necessarily going to like it, but they may, someone else may like it. So just trying to get that balance. And finally, winding down, two questions that I always ask my guests. Uh, you know, what do you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career or perhaps something that you'd wish you'd learned earlier? I think you just have to just be nimble and reactive and, and just know that plans change and people change and expectations can be high, but you, know, you aim for high, <laughs> accept, you know, try to accept what changes around you. And I think that's the most important lesson, maybe in any industry, in any part of life, you know, even as a, a mother of teenagers, I've certainly learned that too. You know, you just you have to go go with it, but also be so aware of your surroundings and what you know, you're not alone in this. And also it's important to build in other other areas, other perspectives that kind of inform what you do. So I think that's probably the most important is just don't be blind to the world around you there's some bumps bumps along the way and kind of riding them and accepting them and then even integrating them as we were talking about earlier how you how you look back to to look forward um, and just using your experience to your advantage i suppose is, is the best thing um so that you know how to you may not know everything but you can you can problem solve yeah i think that's beautiful thank you <laughs> um and then finally is there a film by a woman director that you would like to recommend it can be a modern film's release i won't prohibit that okay i'm going to do one modern and one okay. non-modern how about that so we have a film coming up called uh more than ever by emily Attef. yes um with vicky kreitz who's also in corsage this year and um gaspar ulian who sadly died in a ski accident earlier this year so it's a really it's a film about trying to, I guess, find yourself in the face of adversity and it's a strong So I love that. I worked on her previous film, Three Days in Tuberon, about 
Romy Schneider, and we picked that up in Cannes, and I'm just excited to work with her again and to bring this film uh, out in January. And then for a non-modern film, film is All the Beauty and Bloodshed that was in Venice and won the Golden Lion. And it's a documentary by Laura Poitras about Nan Golden, but, uh, the artist, but also about a movement that she started called uh, to bring down the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical family, and had their name and all the major art institutions, you know, Tate Modern, DNA, even how met, and um, sort of in the face of, of pharmaceutical giants and, and stand up to them. And it's a really incredible film about activism, about art, about life, family, love, change. Well, I would expect nothing less from someone with exquisite taste. I love, I can't wait and to And if see ever it. there was a company, yeah, that I would like to emulate or love to to, to watch and follow and, and work with as participant in, in the US work. The producers of so many incredible films and they made all of the beauty and bloodshed. They're <laughs> incredible. I think they're incredible. They're visionary and they really move, move the the benchmark on what's a good film. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I endorse those recommendations. Ev, thank you so much. This has been such a treat. I have to admit that when I started the podcast, you were on the the list, the first list I put together of people that I would love to have. Um, so it feels very special to have spoken to you today. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me and for your very thoughtful and thorough questions. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. I'm on Instagram at Best Girl Grip for pod-related news. I will be going on a hiatus now until 2023, so I wish you all a phenomenal denouement to your year. Mm-hmm.